Is recruiting engineering talent similar to courting professional athletes? That's been our experience at Gun.io, and Steve Bayette agrees. After traveling the world as a digital nomad and successfully navigating two big-name exits, Steve now advises startups on how to hire world-class engineers and build industry-leading products. He's also an investor in early-stage technology and product companies. In this episode, Ledge and Steve talk about how to make yourself indispensable in your company and how to make sure you're solving the actual problem you were hired to solve. Hint, it's probably not about the code. Steve, good to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ledge. Good to be here. Can you give two or three minute background on your story and and your work? It sounds like you're doing a lot of interesting things. Yeah, totally. So my name is Steve Bayette, and I've been working with startups on the engineering side for about 10 years now. And so I actually started my career as a digital nomad, but this was 10 years ago before there was sort of the pretentious word and lifestyle around that, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, but I was living in places like uh, Bali, Morocco, and Spain, building MVPs and web applications for U.S. companies. And then in the past six years or so, I've transitioned to doing more engineering leadership sort of stuff based in San Francisco. And uh, in that time, I've been lucky enough to have both of my main startups go through successful exits. Uh, the first of which was called Swarm Mobile, which is a company I co-founded in 2012. Uh, Swarm was a hardware software product that was sort of like Google Analytics, but for physical locations. Uh, after raising money and building out that engineering team, uh, we sold it to Groupon in 2014. And after a few years at Groupon, I took my next role as VP of Engineering at Fair Harbor. Uh, Fair Harbor builds sort of kick-ass software for tourism and activity companies all across the world. And in April of 2018, so last year, we were acquired by Booking.com. But as of now, I've actually transitioned out of my role as VP of Engineering at Fair Harbor. I'm currently pivoting into more of an investor role. Uh, I also act as an advisor and consultant, uh, where my focus has been in helping early-stage companies hire great engineering talent and continue to build world-class engineering teams and navigate sort of the ultra-hot engineering labor market that we have, especially in San Francisco, but all over the United States and probably the world at this point. So let's talk about that key points of uh, hiring and, and building a, a great engineering team. Obviously, we're in the business of you know evaluating engineers, right, and vetting engineers all the time, and we spend a lot of time doing that. Just curious, like when you're out there advising companies on, you know, hey, we got to hire, we got to build. What are the key metrics and heuristics that you use? I mean, as far as like the key process points, I'd say the first one is making sure that you're thinking about engineers as actual people that could potentially join your company. I mean, if you're an engineer and you live in San Francisco or anywhere in the United States, I imagine your LinkedIn inbox is full of, uh, you know, kind of spammy recruiter messages. Hey, we got this great opportunity for a language that you don't know and have no reference to on your LinkedIn page. Like, come talk to me about this random thing. Like, that just doesn't work. Like, people want to be recruited as people. And if you look at... Um, you know, the top end of the labor market and other situations, think about sports. Like if you're a professional football or if you're a college football player, you're going to get recruited by the 49ers or whatever it is. Like you're not getting some stupid like message from them. Like it doesn't reference anything that you've done. You're getting something that's super personalized. And obviously the the unit economics are a bit different in that sense. But at the same time, like it all all translates. Like these people have, these engineers have uh, the opportunity to work wherever they want, which is one of the major sticking points of why people switch into that career in the first place. Uh, and you kind of have to work within that framework to get people to pay attention to what it is you're trying to do. I, I love the comparison because we often say that, that we're kind of like high-end sports agents. And, exactly. uh, you know, we 
luckily control, you know, a, a lot of the really great players in the, in the draft. And um, they trust us to represent them as people and to represent their interests and not do that weird bait and switch or just awful sort of, you know, recruiting thing that, that you're talking about with their LinkedIn. And, and that comes down to really developing that relationship. So I, I totally resonate there. Uh, I imagine that you probably have to evaluate, you know, sort of company and engineering values to make sure that there's there's a fit there and help them understand that the types of hires they should look for. What's that like? Yeah, I mean, there's two sides to that market, obviously. And I think from the, from the company side of things, I mean, one of the things I talk about a lot is how to craft your pitch as a company. And the first thing I tell people is don't craft a pitch, just tell the truth and make your company awesome. So telling the truth is easier. Like you can say, hey, we're an engineering-centric organization that really values, you know, quality of code and, and you know, the, the, the insights that you're bringing to the team over just cranking out Jira tickets. But if that's not true, then, you know, when someone starts day one, they're going to be upset. And you've already kind of burned that bridge of, bridge of creating a cohesive team. And then from the engineering side, it's a matter of, like, what do you actually want to be working on? Like, we're in a pretty unique day and age where most engineers, I would say, with especially a year or two of experience, can work at pretty much any company they want and work on a huge variety of problems. So thinking about what would actually be meaningful to you, I think it's a really, it's a big conversation I've had with everyone that I've managed, um, you know, in the past six years, like what, what do you actually want to work on? What would be cool? Do you want to build big systems? Do you want to build interfaces? Like focus on something that actually feels meaningful to you. So your day to day doesn't feel like a slog. You know, we deal with a lot of people who maybe have moved out of the, San Fran or New York area and you know even some of them that they're not digital nomads but they you know they happen to I don't know live in a cabin in Montana or you know come from the Midwest or whatever it is great engineers and are always interested in working for the same types of companies that are out there and it will often come for you know half the loaded cost like, what's the ecosystem like to to get into that I think we know the answer at gun but it'd be cool to hear from, you know, kind of an insider, right? Like how do you get into those positions where you can be a trusted uh, remote engineer for those, those Valley style companies? I think the first question that I would ask is, is sort of, you know, really to look, I'm sure you guys look at this all the time as well as your talent is, is how are, how are freelancers viewed? How are remote workers viewed from within, from within the companies that you're hiring for? Like, obviously they have some sort of, appetite for it if they're talking to you guys and, and making hires. But at the same time, um, I would look more at, you know, are you the one freelancer on a team? Are you, uh, is everybody remote? Is nobody remote? Uh, is everybody having in-person communication and you're the one person who's kind of quote unquote out of the loop? Uh, I would look at all of those things and in, in kind of crafting a response there. I mean, really, I think it's the same blanket answer I could give if you're in person though too is, you know, make yourself indispensable, create value, make sure that you're thinking about the people who are above you and below you and, and newer than you and older than you and making sure that all your interactions are, are positive and you're really trying to, you know, not think about, oh, I've, I got hired to build this, you know, API for this company. Like you didn't, you got hired to solve a problem that somebody higher up the chain thought is going to be solved with that API and really taking into account you're not there to write a lot of code. You're there to solve that problem. If you can solve problems for companies, you're going to be in demand no matter what. You talked about really, I mean, anybody in you know, a one, two years of experience can really sort of write their ticket now in engineering. Maybe that keeps going forever. Maybe it doesn't. But right now it's a, it's a seller's market, right? Um, how does, in that case, 
someone who actually has the 10 plus years of experience and all the, the value that comes with that, how do you recommend the senior people differentiate from the people that kind of check the box and, and, you know, really sort of are engineers, but are not 10 year or 15 or 20 year engineers. You see any differences there? The obvious difference is just in that general value proposition, I would say. I mean, if you're someone who's got, you know, maybe coming out of a coding boot camp or something like that, and you're super excited about the field and want to get your hands wet and build bigger and bigger things, you're going to be really good fit at um, a startup that maybe doesn't have a ton of money sitting around, a big cash pile, and they want to invest in people who are hungry, want to make a name for themselves in their careers. Um, I mean, the value properly changes when you have 10 or 15 years experience. A lot of these people have, you know, families are really value stability more than they do, um, you know, the opportunity to work on that next big thing and take risks. But I mean, balancing out that appetite for risk versus balancing out what sorts of things people want to be building, I mean, it changes for every 20 year senior person who wants to still work at startups. There's always that one or two year in engineer who would want to work at Facebook or whatever it is. Like it just depends on, on the person, I would say. But really balancing out, I mean, I'm sure you see it all the time, balancing out what a company wants with what, you know, what the talent is, that's, that's the most important piece. Yeah, and just like the company needs to know itself and what it's looking for and what it can afford. And, you know, I think there's this vector where the, the person who wants to be that freelancer needs to know himself or, or herself. And exactly. really understand like what are what are the things that I value because maybe there's a currency in stability or a currency in benefits or a currency in cash and, and equity and what have you. So you really need to think about what things do I value as an individual and at my current chapter of life because it may not fit. You might really desperately want to work for a high growth startup um, for equity only, but you know you also had choices where you, you know, had children and, and got a house, <laughs> right? So, exactly. you know, you have to think where all, all that fits together. Um, I think as a you, big component too of, I'm sorry to cut you off there for a bit, but um, I think a big component too of, of, as you move kind of more into senior engineering roles is, is how much sort of, uh, how much oversight that needs to be given to you, right? So do you, can I give you a project uh, and kind of give you the broad strokes for it and have you fill in all the gaps in there? Or are you going to need a little bit more supervision to get to the end of the goal? Um, I think that's one thing that happens a lot as someone transitions from kind of like a junior role into a senior role. Absolutely. And you've gone from digital nomad to leadership to now thinking about investing in companies. How have your views evolved and changed, you know, over that over the course of that time? I would say... I mean, seeing it from all angles has been the important part. So, I mean, when I was the digital nomad, I was working for companies and really trying to keep in mind that I'm not a, I'm not writing code because they want someone to write code. I'm writing code because they want to solve a problem. They want to make money. They want to build a product. They want to do whatever sort of initiative that's been handed off to the person that I'm interfacing with. And focusing on that is so much more important than focusing on, you know, what language it's going to be written in or what the architecture is going to be like or anything like that. I mean, all those things are important, but at the end of the day, if I work on something for six months and that box isn't ticked of why they hired the engineer, then I'm not getting that contract renewed or whoever is not getting that contract renewed. And then from a leadership side, uh, looking, like, looking down at sort of a team of people, uh, what's important to them? I mean, what's important to them is I want a job that's meaningful. I don't want to go to work every day and hate my life and come home and be like, my boss sucks. You want to have fun. You want to feel engaged. You want to feel like you're part of a community, whatever that is. And if you have a remote team, the components for that are really different than if you have a team of folks who are in, in person. And from an investor standpoint, I'm beginning to learn sort of what's important there too. What are, what are the factors? What are the vectors there that you need to be paying attention to? And it's a learning game, but I've really 
I've appreciated the opportunity to learn from all the different angles. There's an optics to investing where you and I talked a little bit off mic about this, that, you know, having the full-time employees that have been hired with those investor dollars and filling those desks up and looking like a company is actually something that, that people take very seriously when you maybe could staff the same or better talent remote and distributed um, using those dollars. And so from a return on equity standpoint, it would actually make more financial sense to, to go and hire people that are not saddled with, you know, $4,000 a month rents in San Francisco. Yet we know that doesn't happen. And there's a great hunger to have those butts and seats. You're about to invest your own money. So I, I'm curious, you know, how are you thinking about that? Do you want your money spent in one way or another? I mean, there's a couple different questions in there. I would say first from like an investor standpoint, the important part is the team, the idea where people are going, how you get there, as long as you have a track record of success, at least from where I'm standing, I'm not you know, good at investing when it doesn't have that at this point. Um, as long as you have a track record of success and you've thought through all the things and are being thoughtful and um, you know, intelligent about the, the market that you're entering and all that, I think that's a huge piece of it. And there's so much timing and luck involved in that part. But I mean, to get back to, I think another question that you're asking, um, there is still, the equivalent people still equivalent or people still make a the the link between butts and seats physical work locations and accountability and i think there is a little bit of truth to that that i think will shift over time but if you bring non-technical people in maybe it's a ceo maybe it's a marketing person maybe it's a product person who, who aren't necessarily writing code they're going to think that everything is going to be more effective i think there's a habit i should say of thinking things are going to be more effective when people are working together in person and I think, at least in my experience, there's some truth to that. There can be. I've worked on remote teams that are absolutely amazing, where everyone's completely in sync and working really well together. But I've also worked on remote teams that aren't. And in-person in teams, like there's tons of opportunities where I've had people sit around and do nothing and not really get stuff done. And then there's been tons of opportunities where everyone's worked really well together and been super cohesive. And it doesn't, I think, come down to remote or in-person. It comes down to all those sort of like softer skills around how we communicate. What are the milestones? How are we How are we communicating these things across a team? That's the part that holds everything together, not the, the factor of in-person versus not. That's at least from where I stand. That absolutely comes up every time I talk about remote. Is it, This is just good leadership and management and self-management and autonomy. These are all things that you need to do regardless of the work scenario. Exactly. It's just that it becomes highlighted in a remote and distributed environment if you're not doing those things. And I think that gets... It gets amplified when you get people who have less experience building technical products. Maybe it's a less technical person. Maybe it's someone who's never built anything before. They pay money to a person to build a thing. They've always been in where they've been to build their things. They build. They want to see someone next to them. They want to be able to ask questions. They want to be able to be sort of having asynchronous conversation with them all day long. That's, that's the part where it gets, I think, harder to manage. So last question. You had a couple of exit scenarios, which congratulations, that's amazing. That doesn't happen to everybody. Thank I'm you, curious yeah. how you managed the transition of engineering teams, you know, from one org to another, like that can, that can be a real cultural shakeup and it kind of scared the people on the ground a little bit, you know, Hey, I have, I have a new master here. How'd you smooth that out so that it was like, Hey, you know, everything's going to be okay and we're going to keep doing our work and we're just part of a different entity. 
It's a great question. And I think it's different with every acquisition and certainly has been for me. I think the bigger question there is how do you do that when even me, even when I don't know what's going to happen. And the best way that I've, I've approached it is just trying to be honest with people and say, hey, this happened. It's a great thing for everybody. This is what it can look like. This is how this can fit into the things that you want to do in your career. And I think, I mean, no matter what, usually when it's a smaller company being acquired by a bigger company, there's a ton more opportunity for engineers. And not a lot of things are going to change. I mean, yeah, like the the value prop different is different. Like you're probably not going to like 10x your equity at like the larger acquiring company, at least not in my experience. But at the same time, as people grow in their careers, usually they want more stability. Usually they don't want to think, oh, is my paycheck going to come in a year or whatever it is. And um, working for a big company too is a great thing on the resume. But I think just to get back to your question a bit, um, just being honest with people and and not pretending like you have a bunch of answers, especially when you don't and just being, you know, open about communication and transparent about what's happening. I think that's always the best answer. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate the insights. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the frontier podcast produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, Head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.